sermon last week and getting back to where we left off two weeks ago. I love the songs tonight because you redeem those songs that normally we hear with worldly, worldly words and transform that song into something that has a true meaning. It's really beautiful. We left off last week at the end of chapter 13 in Matthew. But I want to go back just a couple of verses to thir- verses 16 and 17. And this is a theme that we see in the book of, especially in the book of Matthew, but also here in chapter 13, as we've been looking at these various parables. And remember, chapter 13 is completely all about the parables that Jesus is sh- sharing with his disciples and also those that have been gathering around listening to these parables. Ten of these parables are unique just to Matthew. It's really interesting how Matthew brings out the, these Jewish traits using these various parables. If you don't get one of them, if you don't understand one of them concerning the kingdom of heaven, hopefully you'll get at least some of them, whether it's agriculture or fishing or various common activities that people do to see these various imagery that we see in the parables. It says there in Matthew chapter 13, verse 16, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And Father, tonight as we approach these parables as we approach the words that you literally spoke on this earth the words that prophets and men in the old testament and women in the old testament longed to hear and yet right there in the midst emmanuel god incarnate is speaking to the crowds is speaking to these common people there on the sea of galilee and to hear the very words of God being foretold right in front of them, being fulfilled right in front of them, the speaking of parables, that that even the Old Testament had to be fulfilled would happen, the the miracles that took place that, that had to be fulfilled to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And so, Father, tonight as we we um, conclude this chapter and and go into the very heart and emotions of Jesus Christ as, as he too has to deal with human things, human events, uh, friendships that end and, and relatives that die and, and understanding that we too go through those same emotions that Jesus went through. And to see the perspective of Jesus, to see the perspective that we too need to have. And so, Lord, as we approach this text, as we approach your word, help us to be able to apply these things to our lives. The brokenhearted in this room, the, those of us here that are going through, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or even spiritual pain. And Lord, right now that you would put your mighty hand upon the people in this room and those that may be watching online. That you would speak to us clearly, that your words would come forth with power just as they did 2,000 years ago. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Aren't you glad that God's word is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And just as the Rebecca and Kat were singing tonight, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ alone, right? And especially this time of year, it's easy to become selfish. It's easy to become, what happened to me? Why wasn't I recognized? Why wasn't I considered? Or why didn't I get that certain thing? Or why did this happen to me? And it's so easy to get wrapped up. Especially as we go into a new year, what is it like to realize that you can dedicate not just 2024, but even tomorrow, December 28th to the Lord, or even the next hour, just to recognize I I need to dedicate this time to the Lord. And to see the Lord work in mighty ways. What Jesus is doing here is he's making these parables in such a way that the people can grasp them in their own common language, in their own common experiences as people here on the earth. Remember two weeks ago, we defined the, the, a parable as a principle that packs 
a powerful punch. It's one of those definitions, if you really think about it, that these are bite-sized images of the kingdom of heaven, trying to grasp something that's eternal in pictures that are temporary or pictures that we can grasp here on this earth. And, and again, if I, I don't understand one of the images, hopefully I can understand at least some of these images. And, and then you get to see this multifaceted gem really come to life, all, all these different views of the kingdom of heaven and, and how God is showing us the different perspectives here. We see in the various parables, it's the parable, the point, the purpose, the principle, and then the practical application. Every single one of these parables has a point, has a purpose, has a principle, and then it has a practical application to our own life. And then the other thing that we saw two weeks ago was that Jesus or the kingdom of heaven is always the central character. In fact, every single one of these parables in chapter 13 starts with the exact same phrase. The kingdom of heaven is and then it gives a parable or an illustration or an image of what the kingdom of heaven is like. The last of these parables that we see here, and it's, it's interesting because this is now going down to what the disciples literally do. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragonet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. Now, this is not the 60s TV show, okay? This is a, a big net. I had to actually look this up. I don't know if you've ever heard of a dragnet. This is an illustration of a dragnet. A dragnet isn't a fishing pole. It's not a net that a single person casts into the ocean. This is a huge net that required lots of people to use. In fact, it had to be put into the ocean and then pulled uh, by a group of people, a, a village, if you will. A, a group of people had to pull this net because of the amount of fish and the amount of drag. That's why it's called a drag net, a drag on the net. And so if you really even just try to imagine this, it defines itself the word drag uh, net. In verse 48, it continues on, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. I'm sure you can see the illustration right there. The, the privilege of understanding what the kingdom of God is like. Now, the kingdom of God is the dragnet in this parable, okay? Now, what has to happen with a dragnet? The dragnet just can't be floating out there. What does it take to get the dragnet in? It's not a single person. It's multiple people. And then to realize after that group of people have taken that dragnet out, and you can see it in terms of evangelism, it doesn't take just one person. It takes a group of people, whether it's a person that speaks into a person's heart or, or a person that plants a seed or a person that waters or a person that harvests that crop. The illustration here is of gathering lots of different fish, all different kinds, by the way, that, that are caught in this dragnet. And after all these fish would have been dragged to the shore, there was a sorting process that took place. And you've probably seen it, whether it's on a nature show or a travel show or something like that. And what happens, you have to measure the fish. And, and what happens if the fish doesn't make the cut? What do you do? You throw it back, right? D does everybody get saved the first time they're caught? Were, were you saved the first time someone told you the good news? Thank God that people get another chance and another chance. They need to grow. They, their heart needs to be plowed. Their life needs to go through maybe a certain trial or something that the Lord is working in their life to bring them to the place where they do accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But look at what it says there. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace. 
of fire. Is that scary, by the way? Because what happens when you keep rejecting and keep rejecting and keep rejecting? Is there a consequence to what happens? And maybe you had that person that you had at your Christmas party or over to your house, or maybe you know that you're going to be going to their house at, at New Year's time or, or whatever. And, and, and the things that you used to do at New Year's parties, you know that you have to stand strong and not do it. That Be that light amongst a, a dark place. And thank God that he reached out to us. Because does he change lives, even the hardest of hearts? Thank God for that. But look at the consequence. This isn't just a, a throwing back of the weak. It, it's not just a throwing back of, of the smaller fish. What happens to those that reject the Lord, even at the end of the age? It tells us there at the very end. Is that a scary consequence? This isn't just outer darkness. This isn't just a uh, sulfur or brimstone. This isn't just a separation from God. What actually happens in hell? There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. We don't smell it like we do in other. We don't smell the sulfur. We don't feel the heat. We don't see the outer darkness. In this case, what Jesus is describing in a parable, by the way, He's describing the emotions that take place in hell. Would you ever want anyone to suffer this for eternity? And thank God that we have grace. Thank God that he reached out to us. And the same thing is true for those that we know in our lives. Because every single one of us have a sphere of influence. Every single one of us have people in our lives, whether it's coworkers or family members or friends, and we know that they do not know the Lord. And would I ever want them to go through eternity with wailing and gnashing of teeth, where every single moment, every single day is worse than the last? That's what hell is like. Jesus is describing this in no uncertain terms as he's telling these parables here. And then in verse 51, as Jesus now concludes these parables, he said to them, have you understood all these things? Now, again, this has been a long chapter. This has been a lot of parables. And he's asking the disciples, he's asking the apostles, have you understood all these parables? And what do they say? They said to him, yes, Lord. Now we're, we're going to see that they didn't understand all of them. Uh, you know, they, they missed the point in a lot of cases. But it's the same thing when we're asked of the Lord. And thank God for his mercy, by the way. Because he's not going to end with parables here. He's going to continue with parables later on after he does miracles, after he does the feeding of 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, after various other things. He's going he's gonna to give more parables, okay? He, he doesn't give up on them. But what he does there in the next verse 52, then he said to them, therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure things new and old. What Jesus is doing is he's building upon the Old Testament and he's showing them illustrations of what the kingdom is like that builds upon the Old Testament. He, he's showing them these parables. He's revealing them this different facets, the, these various views of the kingdom of heaven that build upon the Old Testament fulfilling prophecy in their very midst. And then he says this, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's preaching these parables, he's fulfilling prophecy, and he's showing them the fulfillment of it in their very midst. Where Fulfillment of prophecy is taking place right there in their midst. Fulfilling of 
what the Old Testament said. And then he goes home. At the very end of this chapter, he goes back to his home. And I don't know how far you had to drive. Uh, I always remember when we were growing up, we always had to drive to either my grandparents' house. It was always uh, Christmas Eve. We'd always go to my grandparents' house or, or one of my aunts or my uncle's houses. And, and, and I remember the drive, the journey, if you will. And, and then you go there and then you see your cousins, you see your aunts and your uncles. And in our, on the Joneses' side at least, we always exchanged gifts. And then Grandpa Jones would get up with this wad of money. And, and I remember when it started with just $5 bills. He'd give every one of his grandkids, all 20 of them, a $5 bill. And for us, that was a big deal, right? And then by the time he got older and the grandkids were getting older, I remember my later high school years, it turned into $20 bills. Wow. Four times the amount, and he'd just hand those things out. What Jesus is doing here. He's going back to his hometown and he's going to give them something that is greater than finances. What Jesus has done is he's going back to Nazareth at this point, the place where he grew up. For 30 years, he lived and worked in this town. And now he's been gone for a certain amount of time. He's done miracles. He's preached the parables, the Beatitudes, all these various things that he's done. And now he goes back to his own country and he says this phrase that is so poignant. Look at what it says there in verse 54. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not this mother or his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Now, this is interesting because if you count the number of siblings that Jesus had, Jesus was the oldest of at least seven kids. Jesus plus his four brothers, plus at least two sisters, because it's in the plural. So that, that means he, had a, he was the oldest of at least seven kids of Joseph and Mary. And what do they say there? All, all these siblings are living in Nazareth. Everybody knows this family. And they're astonished at what Jesus is doing. But Jesus says, this verse 57 so they were offended at him but jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except is in his own country and in his own house how were you treated this christmas maybe you came with a, a desire to tell someone about jesus and you were rejected Jesus was rejected the same exact way by his own countrymen, his own relatives, the people that he grew up with as well. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's showing us that just like us, just like us in this world, he experienced rejection to, to the deepest degree. And we're going to see it later on, these emotions that Jesus has to struggle with because he's 100% human, yes, fully God, but he also experiences what it is like to be rejected as a person. And do you know why he went through those things? Do you know why he experienced rejection? First of all, to fulfill prophecy, but also so that we could come to him and know that there's an advocate who has gone through the exact same thing, that same things that we have gone through. The exact thing, same thing. And, and aren't you glad that you have someone that you can go to as, who is also, even to a deeper degree than us, a deeper degree than we will ever go through, that there's someone that we can go to and say, Lord, I need your help in this situation. 
I, I need your encouragement. I need your consolation. I need your grace and your mercy. It's interesting if you really look at, at, and these are parallels, by the way, you read the last two paragraphs in chapter 13, and you read the last paragraph in chapter 14, and hopefully we'll get there today. They're exact opposites. You see what's going to happen to the people in Nazareth. They're going to reject Jesus. But then at the end of chapter 14, in a totally different town, the town of Genesaret, they're going to accept him because the, Jesus is rejected in his own town, but in other places that are in the same area, the Sea of Galilee area, people are going to love him. They're, they're going to want to hear the message. They can't get enough. What Jesus is doing here is he's showing that it's the power of God to change even the hardest of hearts. Look at what it says there in verse 58. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He was rejected by his own countrymen, his own family. The people whom Jesus grew up with were envious of his success and the miracles. What does a hard heart do to miracles that can take place? Where it can be right in front of your very eyes and you're blind to it. And all of us know a person like that. We can see it. Thank God we got the Holy Spirit. But that blind eyes, those hard hearts, those stiff necks, who's the only one can, that can change that person? The only one. It's God. And thank God for that. And, and Jesus, this isn't the only time that Jesus is going to go to this place. And by the way, thank God for this. If you look at the names, two of these names are authors in the Bible. The James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, half-brothers of Jesus, they're going to be authors in the Bible, by the way. And it's interesting that we see here, and, and Matthew's the one that brings out this genealogy. Matthew's the one that actually names uh, his siblings, uh, the, these names, the, these people that had once rejected Jesus. They're going to be on the forefront in the book of Acts to testify about what Jesus is and who Jesus is. In fact, so much that James, at least James, of these brothers here is going to be martyred for his faith. To, to see how God transforms life. It's absolutely beautiful. Don't ever give up on your relatives, by the way. Don't ever give up praying for those that you know. Because God can change the hardest hearts. The problem with us is we're very, we want it now. Been praying for a week, Lord. Been praying for a month, Lord. Been praying for a year, Lord. The question is, how long did it take for you to come to the Lord? And how patient was God for you? And aren't you God, glad that God didn't give up after the first week? Or the first month? Or the first year? Or the first decade? God is patient. And it's the same thing with those that we know that the Lord brings into our hearts. In chapter 14, we're taken to this flashback sequence. And it's interesting how Matthew brings it out because it's different than the other Gospels, than Mark and Luke, the way that it's described here. Luke goes into the most detail, but Matthew, the way that he brings this out in such a way, he shows the emotions of Jesus. And this is what happens there in chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. Tetrarch just means a title that he was reigning over a third of the territory. At this time, there was three people that reigned over the Judean area, and Herod was over one-third of this region. He heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. And then we get this flashback sequence to how John the Baptist died, because what Herod is thinking is, that somehow this guy whom he has beheaded is now walking around performing miracles. 
And, and by the way, since they're cousins, you have this familiarity, I guess you could say, uh, of nationality, of maybe even traits. John the Baptist, of course, was the one who paved the way for Jesus. We learned about this earlier in the book of Matthew, where even when Jesus was in the very womb of Mary, John the Baptist jumped in Elizabeth, his mother's womb. We get this flashback here in verse 3, for Herod had laid hold of John, bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's uh, wife. Now, John the Baptist has been very vocal about this relationship. Herod, who is over a third of the Judean region, had taken his brother's wife, who, by the way, has the feminine name of him, Herod, married to Herodias, okay? Try and figure that out. And then his brother, Philip, lover of horses, it, it, whether they divorced or, or whether there was a, some sort of infidelity that took place, adultery. We don't know all the details, but what has happened is they're in this in relationship that, that is, is going against the word of God, and John the Baptist has spoken out about it. Against the political leadership, he has spoken out about this relationship, and he says, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her, and although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Now, Herod is scared of the people. Herodias is not. Herodias now, having left her husband that didn't have power, is now in this relationship with Herod, who does have power, and now by relationship has power herself. And so what does she want? She doesn't like it that John the Baptist is speaking bad about them. But unfortunately, she does it in a way that is very manipulative. She doesn't do it herself. She gets her daughter to do it. Although he wants, or excuse me, verse 6, but when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, and therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, this is interesting because this is the daughter of Herodias. This isn't the daughter of Herod, okay? So this is a stepdaughter. Now, there, there, there's a, a kind of an underlying, you know, reading between the lines. Luke brings this out more. This was a very sensual dance probably even by a minor, okay? And what is Herod doing? He's watching his stepdaughter dance this sensual dance, and he loves it so much. It's scary, by the way. So much that he's promising to give her anything she wants. Where there, there's this underlying lust that is taking place. I'll do anything to see you again. I'll do anything to please you. In verse 7, therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Now no kid would have asked for a head. Who's the one pulling the string? Who's the one using her daughter to sway the heart of Herod? Even so much so to the point of using her in this sensual way. What manipulation is this? What a heart of a mother to use her daughter like that. It's scary. Using the, this power, the, this passive-aggressive way of asking her husband through her daughter for the head of someone that she herself hates. John the Baptist. Because Herod isn't willing to do it himself. The king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him. He commanded it to be given to her. So he went and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. 
He brought it to her mother, and then his disciples came and took the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. This is the end of the one who paved the way for Jesus Christ. This is the end of, of the one who was crying in the wilderness. This is the end of the one whom Jesus himself uh, gave a sermon about just a couple of chapters before. This was Jesus' cousin. So not only do we see this relationship in terms of prophecy, but we see this familial relationship as well. He was family. And what does it do to the heart of Jesus? It says it there in the very next verse. Normally, though, what we do is we separate these things. Normally, you'll have a, a, a heading between uh, these two paragraphs. Normally, people stop here and then start the beginning of another sermon, the feeding of the 5,000 in the very next verse. In fact, most times when you hear the a pastor talking about the feeding of the 5,000 or something, it always starts in verse 13 rather than verse 12. You see, what happens in verse 13 is you see Jesus getting the news. And what was the news that he received? John the Baptist was just beheaded. In the very previous verse, he, his disciples have now taken the body of John the Baptist and have buried those that had served with him and loved him with all their heart. By the way, those same guys, at least two of them were now apostles of Jesus Christ, uh, James and Andrew, at least two. And, and so they would have been a part of the, this funeral process of, of taking just the body, by the way, and, and burying it with reverence, knowing that God had used him truly in the ultimate sense of decreasing him. So that Jesus would increase, literally to the point of giving up his own life for the gospel. And then it says in verse 13, when Jesus heard it, what did he just hear? Now, normally we just skip over these four words. No, normally we don't think about this. We just concentrate on the feeding of the 5,000, okay? And yes, that's going to be important. But why was he going to a secret place? Why was he going by himself to a secret area? His cousin had just died. The one who literally was foretold would prepare the way for Jesus Christ has just died. And what does Jesus want to do? He wants to be alone. He wants to cry. He wants to mourn. See, these are real human emotions that Jesus is going through. First, the rejection by his, his own countrymen. Uh, and then now, uh, literally losing the one that he ministered with. They, they used to share areas along the Jordan River. They used to baptize in these various places. The, the ministries that they had... John the Baptist baptized Jesus. They knew each other before they were born, by the way. Isn't that interesting? They, they was, uh, Alfredo brought this to my attention. They, they might have even had holidays together. They, they might have even played together as cousins. They, they might have even done these things as families together. What has happened to his relative, his cousin, his friend, his worker in the gospel together, his co-laborer, has died. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Why? To cry, to mourn for his friend. But, and there's that word, when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. The multitudes are oblivious to the feelings of Jesus Christ. You see, there, there's a, a divide at times. People call and they're always in need and, and they want you right away. They expect you to drop everything for them. And Jesus did over and over again, by the way. 
He's going to do it again in this very next section. But do you think Jesus was mourning and crying for a reason? Do you think Jesus experienced emotions like we go through? And to see this going in the heart of, of someone who not only is losing a friend, but going to ultimately lose his own life for the same people, give his own life for the same people that are clamoring for miracles, that are clamoring for work, that are clamoring for food. Because that's ultimately what it's going to come down to at the very end of this. But it starts with Jesus wanting to mourn. It starts with Jesus wanting to cry for his cousin. Verse 14, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. He was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. See, what does Jesus do? He gives up his own emotions to care for and be compassionate toward those that are in need. Now, we understand that Jesus is God. Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% human as well. Did he get tired? Did he need rest? And despite all of that, despite the fact that he wanted to be by himself, what does he do instead? He gives to the people. He has compassion for the people. He sees these thousands and thousands of people that want to have their needs met, right? Just like us, by the way. We're very good at it. We want our needs met first rather than those around us. Verse 15, and when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place. Duh, that's the reason why Jesus is there. It's a deserted place. He wanted to be by himself. And the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now, we're very critical of the apostles at times. And Jesus is going to point this out too. But what the apostles are doing, they're actually trying to protect Jesus. They're trying to protect their teacher. They're trying to protect their rabbi. You've been serving these people. You've been helping these people all day long. Send them away. Send them away so they can get food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, it's interesting also because what was the very last parable that we read about? The dragnet, remember? And by the way, they're by the Sea of Galilee. We're going to see that at the end of this parable. They're actually, or end of this story, they're, they're actually right on the ocean. Jesus is going to be getting on a boat in just a little bit from uh, this very spot. Can you imagine these apostles, these fishermen, trying to calculate how much fish or how much food or how much bread it would take to feed these thousands of people it, it would be like us having some sort of a, a gathering here and not having enough food now thank god we got that over that room just right across the way thank god for anthony and kimberly and all those people that that serve every single week making sure that there is enough food but can you imagine these thousands of people showing up and not having enough food what does Jesus do? And we've heard this story over and over again. You know exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be a little boy with his lunch. But what does Jesus do? This is interesting. Verse 17, and they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here. He commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up into heaven, he blessed and broke it. Okay, can you see the picture? What is he doing with this little boy's lunch? He, he's lifting it up to heaven and he starts taking off pieces. The, the loaves and the fish taking off this boy's lunch and having the apostles pass out the food. 
Now, I, we, we always have leftovers in our house. We, I grew up on, on leftovers. My, my mom and my wife are always able to take something that's little and make it into something that's more. Okay? Thank God that people have that ability to be able to do that. But even with this small amount of food, there's no way that you can make this amount of food into a stew that would feed thousands of people. What is Jesus miraculously doing? He's creating right in front of them. He, he's creating in front of them more bread and more fish. So much so that the end result is going to be greater than the beginning. The end result is going to be more than that little boy's lunch, by the way. Look at what it says there. He blessed, broke it, gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave it to the multitudes, so they all ate and were filled. No one there went away hungry. This miracle that takes place after, by the way, uh, Jesus is having to deal with his own emotions, his own problems. This miracle takes place where everybody else is filled. Everybody else is satisfied. And what has happened to Jesus' heart? Of his cousin who has just died. And yet he satisfies the needs of the multitude before his own. And by the way, he's going to get back into the, and go to a different place later on. He's going to pray. He's going to go off into a different place later on. Uh, but the interesting thing here, what does Jesus do before even having to grieve himself? What does he do? He satisfies the multitude. He meets their need. Miracles throughout the whole day, healing people's hearts and limbs and eyes and ears, concentrating upon them, feeding them before he ministers to his own self, his own heart. Now, again, like I said earlier, there was more at the end than, than there was at the beginning. How many baskets did that boy bring? How many baskets? One. Five loaves, one fish, and a single basket that a boy brought for his lunch. What was the end result? Twelve baskets. Twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained after everybody had already been satisfied and full themselves. Okay. Now, there's no coincidences in the scripture. It's amazing in terms of numbers. How many apostles did Jesus have? Was there enough food for the apostles, even? They, they were the waiters, remember? They were the ones that handed out all the food. And it's amazing how God not only uses this little boy's lunch to meet the needs of thousands of people, but also to provide leftovers for the apostles. So that they could, when they get back onto the boat, by the way, in the very next paragraph, uh, also have food for themselves. D does God always think of us? And even the unspoken requests that we may have, that we might not even know that we need, by the way. Jesus always sees the heart of the people. Even though Jesus was in mourning, he still met the physical needs of the oblivious people. They didn't even know he was going through this, by the way. And this is our God. This is the one that we serve. And we're called to be imitators, by the way. And it's so easy for us to want our needs met first. We want other people to meet our needs. We want God to meet our needs. How many times does God want us to give up those immediate needs that we have to reach out to someone who is also going through a hard time? This is the heart of God. This is the heart of Jesus. In fact, in the very next 
section here. And again, this is another very familiar story. Normally, again, we start in verse 22 here. Normally, we, this is an isolated event, normally in a sermon. Normally, we think of this as an isolated event, but it takes place right after the feeding of the 5,000. Right after this miracle takes place, right after Jesus himself had been seeking a, a deserted place to go to, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. Now, what has happened here, they've taken these 12 baskets, they put it on the boat with the disciples. Jesus has sent them away. Then he's sending the multitudes away, and who's left alone now in this deserted place? Jesus. And what does he do there, by the way? And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, picking up where he left off in the morning, by the way. Because this is a day's event. In the morning, here's the news. He goes to this deserted place. He, he's grieving. He's mourning. Multitudes come. They're with him all day long. He feeds them at the end of the day. At the end of the day, he sends everybody away. And then what does he do? He goes up to the mountain to pray. Do you think you would have been exhausted in the middle of the day already wanting to take a nap? And what, what is Jesus doing? Now he wants to go back to where he wanted to be in the very beginning. After he's already taken care of, after he's already had that compassion for the multitude, after he's already fulfilled their needs, now he goes to the mountaintop to pray, to talk with God, to grieve himself. And he went up to the mountain to, by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. It's amazing when you actually read the scriptures in context, how continuous they are. There, there is amazing continuity. There's an amazing thread of perfect harmony if you actually just think about the events in the scriptures. The, just look at the timeline here. It's absolutely beautiful. That This continuation from the morning all the way to the evening, Jesus hearing about his, his cousin being beheaded and then, then taking care of the multitude himself trying to get away and then taking care of the multitude and sending everybody away. And now he's back to being by himself. Being back where he had been before. But then there's that word but again, verse 24. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the wave, for the wind was contrary. He hasn't had a chance to sleep, by the way. He's emotionally drained. He's physically drained. He's going through the, these various emotions that he himself is having to deal with. And now there's another emergency. Right? After he's there at the mountain, by the way, he can see over the Sea of Galilee. He knows uh, what is happening. A storm comes up with those apostles in the boat with their big, huge baskets of fish and bread. Right? That's exactly what's happening. And what do they do? The boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves. The wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now, these are fishermen that have lived in this area, that have lived on this ocean that, or the sea, that, that they know what it is like to survive on a sea. They've been in this boat many times in storms on this same sea. But now what is happening? They see a guy walking out in the middle. Now, it's really absurd how people try to uh, excuse this, this miracle. It's absurd if you look at how people try to explain away this miracle. There is no way that there's stones out in the middle that Jesus is walking on. There, there's no way that there's a, some sort of a shoal where there's a bank that comes out where Jesus is actually walking on sand. No, 
They're out in the middle of the sea where the disciples are actually in a boat that, that is floating out in the middle of this sea, and Jesus is walking on water, proving himself the one who created that same sea, the one who created those same storms and wind, the one who created the water that he was walking on. Go, going against all these hardened sailors common sense, if you will, their own, what they understand in terms of fishing on this sea. What is Jesus doing? He's doing something miraculous. Again, at the end of this long day, now he's going to reach out to his apostles. And again, this story, you've heard it many times, but when you read it tonight or when you read it this week, Look at it from the point of the perspective of this whole chapter, this continuous day that is taking place. Because what the disciples see baffles their comprehension. How can this be that a person is walking on the water? How can this be? And one of them gets out. And we're always hard on the one that gets out. And we never think about the ones that stayed in the boat. Stayed in safety. So hopefully he'll come back next week and we'll get to go through this. Hopefully you'll read this chapter. I pray that you have a, an amazing end of your year and the Lord would bless your new year. I hope to see you at least before then. The privilege that we have, as we, especially as we go through the scriptures, is make that commitment, especially not waiting for the beginning of the new year. Not Don't wait for the beginning of the new year. Start now to read your scriptures. Start now to make that promise. I'm planning on reading a chapter a day or three chapters a day or getting through the Bible in, in a year, whatever it is. Don't wait until the first. Okay, because then you'll get a head start, by the way, too, which is really cool. But God bless you. Dear Father, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have, especially as we end this new year or in this year of 2023. And whether it was a good year or a hard year or a mixed year, whatever it was, Lord, I ask that you would help us to remember as we sang that Jude doxology that, that was literally taken from the book of Jude and, and, and to know that one of these brothers of Jesus would have even been remembering these things as he remembers what the Israelites and we too can remember the things that have happened this previous year and then look forward to what you're going to do in the new year. And, and just as Jesus is by example showing the apostles, showing the oblivious crowds, he himself having to deal with these human emotions and now he's revealing his divinity uh, to the apostles as he's walking on water. And so, Lord, we thank you for the miraculous that you do. We thank you so much for meeting our need, our physical needs, the food that we need. But more than that, we thank you for the spiritual fulfillment in our own lives. Because those things that are temporary, we're going to need them again tomorrow. Lord, we thank you that you came to this earth, you died for us so that we could have eternal life, that we could have life with you forever, ever, and ever. So I thank you for these, my friends and my family. I ask you bless them tonight. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.